This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Better Reading acknowledges the traditional custodians on whose land our office stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and their elders past, present and emerging. I'm Cheryl Arkell from Better Reading. The idea for this podcast came to me from trying to find books to read to my great-nephews. As regular listeners know, I'm from a Lebanese background, and to my surprise, it was difficult finding books where I felt that they could see themselves in the story. It got me thinking about how many Australians must feel like this. Why is there still a lack of diversity in children's books? Why? Late in 2019, Better Reading was awarded a grant from the Copyright Agency to produce a six-part series on diversity in children's writing. At the time, we could not have predicted what 2020 would bring. I now understand more than ever how little I know and how important these conversations are. This series by no means contains all the answers, but I hope it opens up more conversations. I personally have learned a great deal talking to these guests. At times, it was uncomfortable. At times, I wasn't quite sure what I meant or was saying. Afterwards, I've taken the time to reflect on many of the issues my guests discussed. I look forward to learning more. I hope you enjoy our conversation on diversity in children's writing. Will Kostakis, welcome to Better Reading. Will and I met some years ago, didn't we? Uh, yeah, we did, 2010. Yeah, because your book, which book was it at the time? Uh, it was my first novel, so it was Loathing Lola. Was in the Get Reading, Top 50 mm-hmm. Books You Must Read, which is yeah. so, so fantastic. So Will's with us here today to talk about all sorts of things, and we'll get on to that. But for those kids who are grappling with who they are, how they identify, and who they have feelings for, seeing characters like them in stories is like finding a trust and confidant. Books provide safe spaces for children, allowing them to exhale freely, knowing they aren't alone with their feelings. So Will is a YA superstar. He's an award-winning author for young adults. His first novel, Loathing Lola, uh, which we just mentioned, was released when he was just 19. So you must have been just out of high school then, weren't you? Uh, Yeah, just out of high school. So I got my book deal when I was 17 in my final year of high school and then it came out when I was 19. The first third won the 2004 Gold Inky Award. It was shortlisted for the Children's Book Council of Australia Book of the Year and Australian Prime Minister's Literary Awards. Wow. Will's first fantasy novel, Monuments, was released in 2019 and is a Children's Book Council of Australia notable book. The sequel, Rebel Gods, follows this year. Will's novel, The Sidekicks, is about three guys with separate lives who share the best friend. And when the best friend dies, they become three very different young guys who all experience loss when their mutual friend dies. One of the characters, Ryan, is gay, and with the only friend who knew his sexuality now gone, his fear that people would find out who he is becomes amplified. So there, it's it hasn't been an easy path for you, has it? <laughs> well, look, I, I can't. As someone who got a book deal at seventeen, I can't yeah. complain about my path to publication. But it's 
My mum always says uh, you don't have anything put in your way that you can't handle. And that is from someone who experienced a pretty rough upbringing. So I, I listen to what she says in that regard. Oh, look, I was fortunate enough to get my start early to have a publisher that believed in me. But at the same time, with that comes knowing that you've published a book at 17 or written a book at 17 that's gotten published when you're 19 and no one is their best self at 19 or their most authentic self or really comfortable in their own skin. So that first book, I'm really grateful for all the support it received, especially from people like you. And that Get Reading campaign was one of the main reasons why it ended up taking off at least just for a month before it went out of print. Um, but at the same time, that book, while people enjoyed it and laughed with it, you could tell that I was keeping something from the reader, even though it's fiction and all my work is fiction. I was trying desperately to present as straight, to be as sort of marketable as possible, or what I perceived as marketable, because, you know, while I didn't grow up with extreme overt homophobia. I grew up in the media landscape where if where there was, say, the constant speculation over Ricky Martin's sexuality and then when someone like Ricky Martin comes out or George Michael comes out, it is tabloid fodder. Mm. It, so that was obviously internalised inside me and it was reflected not only in the way that I spoke about my work but in the work that I actually produced. But at the same time, I released a book at 19 that underperformed at least compared to what I wanted and what my publisher wanted. And so there was this five-year period in the wilderness where I had to go out, figure out what would make a book sell and what kind of author I wanted to be. And when I arrived at the first third, I thought it was going to be my final book. And so I put as much of myself into that as possible. I broke down those walls that I had up between myself and the reader. And so I reflected on growing up in a small but potent Greek family, but I also snuck in sort of characters that reflected my own queer experience growing up. And I put that in there thinking, okay, this might be my last chance at publishing. And those were the characters that resonated with people the most and that influenced the way that I ended up writing the sidekicks. And then I had a very different experience when I wrote queer characters in the first third as someone who was, you know, for all intents and purposes, publicly straight. And with that Sidekicks novel where I wrote similar sorts of characters, suddenly they were deemed controversial because I was not publicly straight. You know, I, I remember that and I was blown away that that was an issue around that mm. time because it wasn't that long ago. When was it? It was 2016. And the wonderful wow. thing is, even though it wasn't a long time ago, it is an incredibly long time ago. Mm. So I've been touring schools now for over 10 years, talking to kids about writing. When I first used to tour, schools were a lot like the schools that I went to, where, mm. you know, nobody was out. And if they were what we would perceive as obviously gay, they had a girlfriend. Like it was, there was still the culture of being in the closet. And then as crass and sometimes or oftentimes poorly written as it was, shows like Glee and Primetime really changed what kids saw as possible in high school and I saw the culture shift. And as I began to tour more about five, six years ago, I met more out kids. And then after the release of The Sidekicks, now the norm is I'll go into school and I will instantly meet mm. 10 or 15 queer kids who will have heard that I'm coming. Yeah. And it's really wonderful because... The amount of gay kids in schools or LGBTQIA plus kids in schools hasn't changed, but they are now more confident to live more authentically at schools. And that's a really positive thing. 
the great thing that yeah. people can just be themselves. And look, even though it was only a short time ago, things like the marriage equality debate, which were by and large mostly symbolic, that has really forced a lot of schools to sort of take stock and change the way that they treat the LGBTQIA plus kids. Because honestly, when you're in a school, your mental state and your mental health affect the way that you learn. And so if school is not a hospitable environment for you, for whatever reason, that's going to affect your outcomes at the end of the day. And we are finally seeing schools catch on to that. I want to mention this and tell me what you think about it. Mm -hmm. You know, Pete Buttigieg, one of the Democratic frontrunners, well, he dropped yeah. out. But I listened to a podcast with him because he came out quite late in life. And he said, which really kind of resonated with me, why do I have to do that? Why do I have to come out? Why can't yeah. we just be the people that we are? What do you think about that? Look, um, Pete is an interesting example because he is He's, he's a very respectable kind of gay. Like he wouldn't do public events and his husband wouldn't do public events in openly queer spaces that let's say, you know, there was a, a gay club where there was a stripper pole in the background and they would be like, no, we're not. There, there was only a certain kind of image that they wanted to project. And so uh, when it comes to sort of the idea of wanting to exist in a world where you don't have to come out, look, that is... That's basically Narnia. Like, I would love to have for that world to exist, but it's not. And we are humans. We communicate with each other. There are things that you can't just look at someone and think, okay, that is what that person is. Because we shouldn't really be making those assumptions about each other. We should yeah. live in a world where we can come out and we can talk about who we are in a really open and frank way. The, the, at the core of what he's saying is that cis, straight and white is the default. That's what I'm and, getting at. And yeah. so, but that's for us to unlearn that, mm. it's going to take a very long time and it is going to take my generation coming out, the next generation coming out, the generation after that coming out. Mm. As much as I would love to envisage a world where we don't have to come out, everyone may have to come out. Like there, there could yeah. be sort of a, a, a rite of passage at say 12 and say, this is who I am. But that also people feel kind of trapped by coming out because I believe that sexuality is fluid and there are lots of people that uh, subscribe, ascribe to that view and people shouldn't feel like they're in a box where it's like, okay, I have been primarily with women all my life, therefore that is it. Or late in life, you can't simply meet someone who awakens something else inside of you. And so this idea that having to lock yourself into something and be sort of locked into that for the rest of your life is also a bit odd. I think we should just, as humans, be comfortable talking about each other. And if somebody tells you that is who they are, don't question it. Don't be afraid of it. Just sort of embrace it because they know themselves better than you think you know them. Mm. I want to talk about looking for Alibrandi because mm -hmm. I grew up as a Lebanese Australian, as you know, well, and I remember that book for me was mm -hmm. so life-changing. It mm -hmm. was the first time that I had ever seen myself in writing mm -hmm. and in story. Yeah. And it really just opened up my world. And then after looking for Alibrandi, Christos Chalkos mm -hmm. was another really, I mean, I remember when I first read Loaded, you know, it, it game changed my life that you can talk about your background as openly as that. And you can have those characters in stories that I'd never seen in yeah. anything I'd ever read. Tell me about the importance of that and where that sits when you're writing. Not only is it important to see yourself and it's, you know, I grew up, I loved 
looking for other brandy as a kid. But at the same time, I read books like Tomorrow When the War Began, which are revered, but let's say the representation of the Mediterranean guy in that book is very much stuck in the past. And it is very, a very stereotypical surface layer. The way that my cousins and I would talk to each other when we were joking, and you could very much tell that it was someone observing the culture rather than someone who really understood it intimately. And so you got the surface level, say, Greek arrogance coming through, but the nothing, none of the heart underneath it. And a lot of the misogyny was really realised, but then none of the stuff that makes them rounded people was there, or at least not in the first book. And it was the reason why I didn't want to pick up, even as a kid, I didn't want to pick up the next one because I'm like, mm. it, I felt a bit icky. Representation and seeing yourself in text is good, but seeing it presented in a way, I don't want to say harmful, Well, you don't want to be a stereotype. Exactly. You don't want to be a stereotype. And you also don't want to, especially with queer representation, we absolutely love torture porn. We love to see people suffer. We see it when we look at books, usually by well-meaning white people, about refugees. And we see it in books where it's about, oh, the struggle to come out. And it's just, you just see people dropping the F-bomb every five seconds directed at a kid. I'm like, but what is this actually doing? You're just sort of, the homophobia is really realised, but none of the joy of queer lives is there. It's really important that we tell a diverse range of stories about diverse people. Like I said that the sidekicks would be my first and only sort of coming out story. And, you know, I can already see myself backtracking on that comment, but I don't want to keep writing queer characters who just have to come out because that seems to be the only story usually straight people are comfortable reading about. And our lives don't end with coming out. We don't find ourselves completely when we come out. We keep developing, keep growing. You know, getting the acceptance of our parents shouldn't be our only life struggle. It shouldn't really be a struggle. And, you know, when I was growing up, the queer stories that I would see, I wouldn't see many in books. I saw many on TV. And the one that I really remember was Dawson's Creek. And I remember watching it and one of the characters, Jack, came out and it was this huge drama and it was like, you know, parents not accepting him, all that sort of stuff. And so in my mind, however old I was, that was the default for what coming out was. And it was why I was hesitant to come out to my mum. And these narratives, they kept building. You see them in books all the time. People, we only saw a struggle to come out. Whereas, you know, I had a mum who put herself through hell and back to make sure my brothers and I were raised. She was a single parent. And, you know, my older brother came out and she was dramatic for about two days and then she was his staunchest ally. And my younger brother, we had sort of suspicions. And so I was there the middle of three gay sons and I was still hesitant to come out to my mum. And that's silly because it goes against everything I knew about my mum. So your older brother came out and your younger brother came out and you're in the middle. So I actually came out to my mum. She came up to me and she was like, oh, well, you know, I I saw your younger brother and he, he looked he was with a guy and he looked really comfortable. I think he might be gay. And she's like, I just want to know, you know, no more surprises. Tell me, are you? And I was like, I had my whole speech prepared that I'd been preparing the shower. And I just decided, nah, stuff it. And I just told her then. It was really easy. And I always say that when you're in the closet, you expect the absolute worst of people. So we had this thing where it was like, we can't tell your grandmother. Like she cannot know that you boys are gay. And mum did what she wasn't supposed to. And she came out for us. But, you know, she thought she could handle my octogenarian grandmother better than we could. She came out to my grandmother. She picked the absolute worst time. She, my, she was driving my grandmother to the airport. My grandmother was going to Greece for three months. And my mum's just like, Ma, the boys are gay. And he was like, what? And mum's like, 
they're gay. And yeah. Yaya's like, all of them? She's like, all of them. And my grandmother's in the car just losing her mind. She, you know, flies to Greece, you know, probably sobbing the whole way. And she arrives <laughs> at Greece. She's like, right, I've got to go to one of those, you know, monasteries on the hill where you have to, you know, have a Sherpa guide you on a donkey for three days to get to this super holy church on a yeah. mountain. She goes there because she has to repent. She has to, you know, Because it's all her fault. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. she goes to she goes to the monastery. She goes to confession. She goes to the priest. She's like, "Help me! I've come to confess." He's like, "What is it?" And um, my grandmother's like, "My grandsons are gay." And he's like, "All of them?" She's like, "All of them." <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, okay, but why are you in confession?" And she's like, "Oh, but um, I've done something wrong, haven't I?" And he's like, "Well, do you love your grandchildren?" And she's like, "Yeah." And he's like, "Are they good people?" And she's like, "Yeah." And he's like, "Well, then they're gifts from God." And so she came back and the whole thing was, she was like, look, I will call him your friend. And that, and that was, that was the first thing that she did. So she's like, I want to meet your friend. You can only have one friend, but I will meet your friend. And so she did that. And now she likes my partner more than me, but I do see it as that sort of breaking ground. You haven't had as many, there have been some reports of it happening to a new YA author called Holden Shepherd, but on the most part, that sort of like, having not only one school sort of dictate this is what you can and can't say. I had other schools who would wholesale, you know, my calendar was wiped for three months and I went from touring two to three schools a week to nothing for three months. And slowly but surely I got all those gigs back when kids rose up and said, hey, no, Will's come and spoken to us. He doesn't say anything inappropriate and he actually talks to us like we're people. (laughs) And... I'm really fortunate to see that, or at least so far, I'm glad that that hasn't happened to somebody else. And mm. so if that's if that's my cross to bear and that's the only thing that I achieve is having a Catholic school be mean to me once, <laughs> then it feels like it was worth it. As we've said, the landscape has completely changed. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Kids feel empowered to tell their teachers, look, this is what I want and this is the sort of stuff I want to read and the kind of speakers that we want. When I was young, you went from reading Charlotte's Web to yeah. reading Jackie Collins. That was <laughs> kind of a teen read, if you like. Uh, particularly for young men, they went from whatever they read to reading Tom Clancy. Or, yeah. And there wasn't that distinct genre of youth mm-hmm. fiction at all. But I feel what happened then is the readers created that genre. The readers were asking for books that were appropriate to them. Yeah. There was a whole generation, if you like, YA people that weren't represented in literature for a long time. And now it is one of the most popular genres. Of course, it's what they want to see. And even in the, in the early days of YA, it was quite didactic and it was very much you are going to learn a lesson from yes. this. And yes. 
that has that has thankfully sort of been stripped away a little bit. You see it creeping back every so often, yeah. but it really comes down to look at the world that we're living in. Like I go back and I read books from 10 years ago that I loved, but I'm sitting there going, wow, it is just straight white people, like the mm-hmm. entire way through. And, you know, you'll see more diversity when you walk to Coles and, and do a quick 20-minute shop than you would see in three or four novels you are spending hours with. As writers, we need to reflect the world. We don't have to be tied to our lived experiences. But if we're not reflecting the world as it is, we are dealing with, if we're writing contemporary, we're actually dealing with fantasy. And it's kind of a racist, homophobic fantasy that is excluding all these other things. And the thing about writing about different lived experiences is that you end up with stories that are so much more interesting and so much more fascinating because we haven't in the past hundred years been privileging these stories and letting them rise to the top. We've been so scared of, oh, what a library won't stock this if it has two gay boys kissing in it, or this trans character may be an issue with these certain kinds of people, but we shouldn't let that fear stop us from reflecting the real world because one, it makes our stories better. Isn't that what we should be doing with everything? Yeah. And it's, but we have been taught by society to put up our walls and to be afraid mm. of each other. And the second you are vulnerable on the page, like I know some authors get this, I get it especially, I get really nervous if I'm writing something quite personal. And I'm like, can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? This, is, this feels really personal to me. I don't know who's going to connect with this. And those parts end up being the parts that people respond to the most. Absolutely. Because while we all haven't lived the same life, you know, we like to think that we're all really unique, but we're not. We all crave love. We all crave acceptance. We all crave a chance to be the best that we can be. And by writing something personal, you usually tap into a universal truth. So you wrote your book, first book at 17. How was yeah. it published? I mean, how on earth did you get to start? Uh, I had been sending books to publishers from my 12th birthday and I'd been getting steady, <laughs> steady rejection letters because I, I, I took a stand. I was like, I'm not going to put my age on this. I'm going to yeah. get published because of the quality of my work. Now that I've grown up a little bit, I'm like, I should have put my age on it because that yeah. would have... That's it's half of its marketing. So I love that. It's not like the editor's not going to know that you're twelve. I mean, you know, oh, that's, like it was going to be apparent. It was the <laughs> the rejection letters were brutal. Like they were shattering. So I kept sending it off. They kept saying no, and then. I decided during a free period in year 12, I was going to guess every publisher's email address and send them a book. Yeah. Um, but I didn't have the book with me. And as I was writing the email, I changed the pitch, but I still lied and said I'd written the book. I sent yeah. it off the email. And then within about 20 minutes, I had two replies from two different publishers saying, we'd love to read it as soon as possible. And so I had to rush, write a chapter. I sent it off. And then one of them was like, great, we'd love to meet you. How's next week sound? And so I went in, I didn't really, hadn't really written anything of this book. And they were like, and we had a couple of meetings. I had to go in with my mum because she didn't trust me. She likes to think she's not a typical Greek mum, but she's a typical Greek mum through and through. Like she sat there and she's like, oh, my eldest son, Christopher, he's, he can also <laughs> write a book if you'd like. And you just see the publisher look at her like, no, no, I'm good. Just here for William. Thanks for that. And so there was that process and the book came out. And about two weeks later, I was in the office and I was like, great, I've got these other ideas for a book. And they were like, Will, we don't think you should write for five years. You're not ready. 
And I remember taking that really to heart. It was the only time I'd ever had writer's block where I just couldn't write. I went from writing a book a year to writing nothing. And that's why whenever I see publishers spruiking the latest young author, and especially if they're in high school, I always sort of tense up because I'm like the infrastructure of publishing and the culture of publishing is not equipped to accommodate 19-year-olds. There are some authors that we allow to talk about their craft. They're usually uh, journalists who become authors. <laughs> they're, usually, they're usually white men who aren't uh, any kind of quote-unquote diverse label. And you get to talk to them about, you know, the intricacies of their work. Whereas when I have to talk about my work, I have to stand up and say, hey, I'm Greek. Here's a joke about my grandmother. And everyone laughs. And, oh, I'm gay. Here's a joke about being gay and having a Greek grandmother. And everyone laughs. And that's... Look, I like that because I like talking about my family. But at the same time, I'm not really seen as an author. I'm seen as someone who talks about their life and the books are kind of on the side. That's not true for me. Because when we sat together and we were talking about this podcast and who we would like on it, you are Mm. the first person that came to mind. And I Mm. only know you as an author. Yeah. Next time you see a any kind of writers festival, look at the panels that are there. There's, you know, you'll have a panel that's like exciting stories and you'll see a cavalcade of whiteness. And then you will have tucked in the corner, you'll have the diversity panel. And that's where you see a lot of the people of color, a lot of the sort of marginalized writers. And we keep having the same circular conversations about diversity, which we understand that that is the work that we have to do. And that is the way that, you know, we market these kinds of books, but true equality in terms it it doesn't stop with just publishing a certain number of books Mm. it comes with the person of color who wrote a really funny you know lesbian romance let her speak on the other kinds of panels as well and let her speak on the romance panel exactly programmers are getting better it is improving drastically year on year Mm. but it does feel like we're shut out of talking about a lot of other things too. And then it's the double-edged sword where we get to talk about sort of diversity and then somebody just goes, oh, you're so political. or All you do is talk about diversity. And then it comes back to the point where it's like, well, is it, it's a chicken and egg situation. It's the only opportunities we're really getting. After the thing happened with me in the Catholic school, someone from my publisher pulled me aside and she said, Will, you don't want this to be all you are. Just be mindful of that. And I took that to be like, oh, what a, but it is who I am, right? And my, my first, you know, instinct was to be like, no, this is who I am. And then about a couple of months later, I started to realise it was all that I would talk about and it was all that I would tweet about. It was all that I would, whenever I was talking about my work, and I just sort of, yes, I'd been pigeonholed by others, but I'd started to pigeonhole myself. Well, and you were and, angry as well. I mean, oh, of course, bit, and it and was, hurt. of course. Yes, anger can be really, really productive. It can also build other walls as well. It's just being mindful of not only giving diverse voices and diverse authors space, but it's also making sure that that space isn't just, hey, talk about diversity for five minutes so we feel like we've changed the world. But it's remembering that diversity should not equal pain and that we should allow for different kinds of diverse stories to occupy space. Like I wrote the first third and the sidekicks and they were contemporary novels where 
queer kids and Greek kids were sort of looking at their place in the world and really wrestling with their identity in a really serious way. And that was great, but I was like, you know what, why doesn't the gay Greek kid get to save the world? Why doesn't he get to go on an adventure? Why does he have to wrestle with Mm -hmm. his identity? And so I wrote Monuments, which was my most recent novel, which is a really fun action adventure where the main character I don't want to say happens to be gay because that sort of implies that the the queerness doesn't affect the way the story is told or who he is as a person. It's that his his gay identity isn't something that he is, the discomfort in the story doesn't come from that. Hmm. And, you know, that, that queer pain isn't centred. And the big thing was, and I got this feedback from a lot of people that I perceive to be diversity champions, like librarians, booksellers, where they're like, oh... We found it a bit unbelievable that this 16-year-old boy wouldn't at least grapple with homophobia. Mm. And so they had been so accustomed to believe that a gay life had to be a difficult one and a gay 16-year-old couldn't have, the story takes place over three days, Mm. he couldn't have three days where he didn't encounter homophobia. Mm. And who is that really for? I don't see gay kids clamouring for a book about homophobia. Like, Mm. I don't. If I see one more book in Australia that is really beautifully written, but it's about humanising refugees, right? People read that and embrace it and they're like, oh, well, we're changing the world with this book. But what is actually changing? Like, are we actually taking steps to close what are detention camps mm. overseas? Or are we just getting the warm fuzzies from a book that show people being racist and Islamophobic or whatever they are being to refugees and feeling like we've achieved something? Because I don't see a refugee wanting to pick up a book and wanting to be like, oh, this, this homophobia and this, this Islamophobia, this, this racism felt really true to me. Like, I don't think... And so we've got to wonder... Are we writing diverse books for those marginalised people to make sure they feel seen? Or are we writing diverse books so that people who aren't marginalised can read them and go, oh, look at how much they've struggled. I feel like I'm, a, I'm growing as a person now. Yes, the story should be informed by that because I'm informed by the experiences that I have where I encounter or have encountered homophobia. Mm. Of course that informs who I am. You know, I read a book recently, there were four gay bashings in it. And I'm like, great, one was enough, wasn't really necessary to begin with. Mm. But it's just making sure that we see more, there is more to uh, the diverse experience than pain. The sidekicks, there was this huge furor over the sidekicks. The reason why the furor existed was because I came out on my website and the school that had booked me hadn't read this particular book. And so they thought, oh, gay guy coming. Ugh. And it, it might be You're bad. so scary and threatening. So that happened after, say, Hunger Games. That happened after Jasper Jones. And so it was extremely appropriate to say, study Jasper Jones in year eight. That opens with um, the hanging of a girl, mm. right? Mm. And we are 100% okay with that. Yeah. And that sexualized violence against women, 100% okay with that. Mm. But, you know, there are some things that we want to clutch our pearls at Mm. as if teenagers, like I write for teenagers, but as if eight-year-olds can't Google what sex is. Mm. The age that kids are finding porn online, like they are seeing the worst that we would shield them from, they can find quite easily. Mm. The thing about books is that you can go into the emotional side of things and that's where their power is. 
and you can reflect the world authentically. All that information is already there. Look at what teenagers are writing on Wattpad and other sort of forums that allow them to share their writing. You see straight girls writing queer male-male romances because it is a comfortable way for them to explore their sexuality. There are many books about gay boys coming out that are mostly written for an intended female audience and it is a safe space for them to explore their burgeoning desires. And the way that we treat queer texts and the way that we treat uh, texts that explore diverse races It comes from a place of fear that we are somehow going to corrupt people by showing them the world as it exists. So we just have to sort of break that down and constantly listen and constantly learn. Absolutely. Will, thank you so much for your time. Always, my pleasure. Extraordinary amount of information there and so beautifully told. Uh, When's your next book out? Uh, So I have two books coming out this year. I have Rebel Gods coming out in September this year, which is the follow-up to Monuments, which was released last year. Mm -hmm. And then I have The Greatest Hit, uh, which is a novella for the Australia Reads campaign, uh, which is released in November. So I'm very excited about that. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, 
and monetize their podcast everywhere. ACAST.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.